Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, we'll start the show with some poetry we could all use now for some healing and revival during this trying year. From the works of Khalil Gibran, Longfellow, William Ernest Henley, and Max Ehrman, read by Shane Morris. Defeat. My defeat. My solitude and my aloofness. You are dearer to me than a thousand triumphs. And sweeter to my heart than all world glory. Defeat. My defeat. My self-knowledge and my defiance. Through you I know that I am yet young and swift of foot, and not to be trapped by withering laurels. And in you I have found aloneness, and the joy of being shunned and scorned. Defeat. My defeat, my shining sword and shield. In your eyes I have read that to be enthroned is to be enslaved, and to be understood is to be leveled down. And to be grasped is but to reach one's fullness and like a ripe fruit to fall and be consumed. Defeat, my defeat, my bold companion, you shall hear my songs and my cries and my silences. And none but you shall speak to me of the beating of wings and urging of seas, and of mountains that burn in the night. And you alone shall climb my steep and rocky soul. Defeat, my defeat, my deathless courage. You and I shall laugh together at the storm and together we shall dig graves for all that die in us. And we shall stand in the sun with a will. And we shall be dangerous. Tell me not, in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream. For the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end of way, but to act that each tomorrow finds us farther than today. Art is long and time is fleeting, and our hearts Though stout and brave, still, like muffled drums are beating, funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb, driven cattle 
be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, our pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within and God overhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main a forlorn and shipwrecked brother seeing shall take heart again let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate still achieving still pursuing learn to labor and learn to wait Out of the night that covers me. Black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the year finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Go placidly amid the noise and the haste, and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible, without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly, and listen to others even to the dull and the ignorant. They too have their story. Avoid loud and aggressive persons. They are vexations to the spirit. If you compare yourself with others, you may become vain or bitter. For always, there will be greater and lesser persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements as well as your plans. Keep interested in your own career, however humble. It is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Exercise caution in your business affairs. For the world is full of trickery. But let this not blind you to what virtue there is. 
many persons strive for high ideals. And everywhere, life is full of heroism. Be yourself. Especially do not feign affection. Neither be cynical about love, or in the face of all aridity and disenchantment. It is as perennial as the grass. Take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune. But do not distress yourself with dark imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be. And whatever your labors and aspirations in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace in your soul. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy. And thank you, Red Frost Channel, for that stirring interlude on the show. And next up on Arts Express, rock legend and songwriters Hall of Famer Don McLean joins us from rural Palm Desert, California, where he lives now. Don will talk about, of course, his iconic American pie, reinterpreting and critiquing it in the present time, along with some memory lane moments to share and in his troubled life, responding to criticisms he's received in the press, and that included domestic violence accusations, and what in the world happened to music along the way, quote, video killed the radio star, until the song got to be secondary. First, the music, then Don McLean. A long, long time ago, I can still remember that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside The day the music died So bye-bye Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And then good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I die Did you write the book of love And do you have faith in God above 
Okay, is there anything new and different about the recording of American Pie with the group Home Free and the 50th Anniversary World Tour you're putting together? Well, uh, the Home Free version of my song American Pie um, has turned out to be a smashing success. And, um, you know, we had no idea that that's how it would happen or what would happen. So that was a a gift, a big surprise. And uh, the world tour has not been able to start because of the pandemic, but I can promise people out there listening that whenever the green light is giving, I will do a world tour. Because yeah. I'm in excellent shape in every way imaginable and raring to go. So whenever things are opening up and happening again, and even if it's a year from now, I don't care. I will start doing all these tours. Mm. I'm just saying that the, the home-free version of the song suddenly started, one taste of country had it as the number one country video. That is just, um, just amazing. Now, the headline promoting the 50th anniversary of American Pie states, quote, that it chronicles somewhat cryptically the politics, youth, and defining events of the 50s and 60s. What are your thoughts about that headline, and do you agree or disagree with it? Well, I don't care about it. All I care about is the song. You know, I don't care what people say. Um, people say all sorts of stuff. And um, American Pie is not really uh, focused on it's meant to be forever. Mm. And the reason that people listen to it, even 50 years later, is because it seems that it is forever. Yeah. Uh, all my songs are forever. You know, And I Love You So, Castles in the Air, Vincent, Crossroads, whatever. They're, they're meant to be forever, not just uh, in the moment or the time period when they were made, uh, because it's a song that matters. You know, not not the kind of music or whatever at that moment. And songwriting uh, up until the 80s, really, when, you know, as the song says, video killed the radio star, hmm. um, was going really pretty good. And then the imagination that's required to, to listen to a really good song was, removed by the fact that everybody was making videos and putting, you know, literal visual representation to the song and taking away that aspect of imagination. So the song got to be uh, second secondary mm. to the video. And that, I think, um, has ruined songwriting and ruined the audience's ability to hear it or to want to hear it. And would you say your feelings about the song itself may be the same or different in any way when you hear it today and in the context of what's going on in the world now 
as opposed to back then. We can always, you know, you can always write a song about America, which is what that song is. It's an impressionistic song about America and music and politics. And the song will always be relevant. Uh, the one thing I try to avoid is, you know, uh, is, the, is the sort of jingoistic um, America right or wrong type of the song. Um, I don't like those kind of songs. In fact, it's funny because the song This Land is Your Land, which is the very left-wing uh, anthem of, you know, this land was made for you and me, the implication being that, you know, everything belongs to everybody. And actually, Woody Guthrie uh, wrote, this land was blessed for you and me. In other words, taking it from God Bless America, and then changed it, was made for you and me. So, um, you know, a lot of things can, can, songs are tools. You know, my songs are all tools that I use on stage to tell a story or express the kind of thing that I want to do. I don't have a set list or anything. And I've been on stage with some mighty great people where stuff just happens, you know? Yeah. One thing leads to another. So much to now, now today is all scripted, you know, and, you know, they do the same thing every night. And um, I'm not interested in that. Speaking of which, you've been critical of music today compared to when you first got into music. You've said, we have kind of a nihilistic society now. No one believes in anything. No one has any respect for anything much. And the music shows that, if you can even call it music. What can you say about that? I totally agree with whoever said that. You said it. (laughs) I agree with me. I reiterate and, and underscore what I said. I totally agree, only I think it's actually worse than that. Because, you know, one of the things that surprised me when I was starting out is I always dressed myself. I had shirts made, you know, that uh, made me look a certain way. And I bought stuff in Army and Navy stores, and I wore things that I got from... from um, Oh, old consignment stores. You know, I still go over to the place where they sell uh, used clothes and look around for funky ties and things to wear. Mm. Um, see me now, I wear sort of bright silk, and that's those are shirts I had made outside those. Well, I remember playing at the Troubadour for the first time, I think, when I was, uh, before I'd really made it, when I had tapestry out. And I think I was on a show with Carly Simon, and we had a, we were making a lot of noise in town. But she's a great performer. Mm. And he was topping the bill, and I was on the undercard. But it was a double bill. And we got great reviews and everything. And somebody said, what's she wearing? You know, what's she wearing? Mm. And I thought, who cares? You know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, Pop music is fashion, and that was my first awareness of that. Mm. And now you look at some of these people that are out there, and um, it's really the fashion. In fact, I wrote a song called Fashion Victim. It's really the fashion that's out front, not the music. It's Mm. the fashion of what they're wearing is, uh, you know, the main thing. And what would you hope American Pie says to a different generation today? Well, I'm very happy when I hear that people dig into early rock and roll, Buddy Holly and, you know, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper, you know, because Big Bopper represents the um, uh, novelty aspect of 50s rock and roll on the radio. You know, you had the Purple People Eater, you had the Buchanan and Goodman um, um, rock, you know, spaceships from outer space. You had all kinds of novelty records that were always part of the top, the top forty in the fifties. You know, and many, many others. 
And some of the groups would do records that were almost novelty records, like Stranded in the Jungle, which is one of my favorites, by the Cadets, or, um, you know, Shopping for Clothes, which um, the Coasters did, which is one of the hippest tracks you're going to ever hear. That was written by Lieber and Stoller. They were, they, you know, there was that novelty aspect. And then there was Richie Valens, who, you know, is, was Mexican, only 17 years old, and had three of the most wonderful hits, especially Donna, yeah. which I always found very compelling whenever I hear that record. It's very, very beautiful. Yeah. And he represents our our Spanish brothers who um, are coming up from South America and Mexico. And I, I'm here in the desert near uh, the border in Palm Desert, California, and I have, oh, lots of Mexican friends. They're the most wonderful people in the world. And uh, so he he's, he represents that. And that was way before. And Buddy Holly actually had what they call the Tex-Mex sound. So um, heartbeat, songs like that, had a, a Mexican flavor uh, to that, to, to what he did. Because, you know, he's being in Lubbock. He was near the Mexican border also, as, as was... Um, uh, Marty Robbins, mm. you know El Paso always had that, that that Mexican flavor. So maybe they'll get into this. You get kids interested in in really good, and then you go way back. All the great songwriting that's that's been done, and a beautiful popular song is like a song like the way you look tonight. Or mm. Buddy Holly wrote beautiful popular songs too, like Moon Dreams and. Uh, songs like that with violin. He was influenced by that kind of music. You know, uh, uh, and show tunes are gorgeous. These wonderful Rodgers and Hammerstein songs. To have young people immerse themselves in beauty instead of anger and ugliness is good for your mental health. Hmm. I don't think a lot of this stuff I hear on the radio is good for people's heads. I don't. Now, your music has brought you great recognition and appreciation but fame has also, with its scrutiny and accusations against you, and the press has been part of that. What are your thoughts about that contradiction? Well, that's the price you pay for being, if you're famous, anything that you do, uh, you run the risk of having um, people that you thought were close to you or that you thought were friends of yours turn on you in order for them to get a moment in the spotlight or get some sort of um, recognition that they feel they need or there's always a repressed sense of, um, um, you know, feeling jealous. Why does he get all the attention? I've seen this with a lot of other people. Um, That's what happens when you're famous. And um, it's bad and it's good. It's painful, but it also lets you know what people are really thinking. Because, you know, I think everybody talks about everybody behind their backs. Yeah, I all do it. So you're getting it in one way or the other. It's just not in the papers. <laughs> but I would tell people sometimes, you know, we have a party at the house or whatever, and they'd be leaving. And I, if I was a little drunk or I was in a funny mood, I'd say, you know, when you're in the car talking about us, we'll be talking about you. <laughs> And any last word on what's going on with your music lately and any new directions for you? Well, I don't really need new directions. I just, and, and this is basically my personal feeling, I've never needed to reinvent myself fine the way I was. I just need to keep tweaking and improving. It's like a house, you know, I got, I'm bringing in some, some gas generators here to my house and I change some things on the roof and you know I'm doing some other things so yeah you're good the way you are just keep improving mm. so um, you know I've got a new album that's going to come out called American Boys uh, this year and I've got um, this documentary movie this children's book and this Broadway show that have all been uh, contracted for and monies have been paid so this stuff's going to happen Otherwise, you're going to lose a lot of money. And um, so it's not pipe dreams. Mm. But, um, you know, one thing kind of leads to another. And I've always done 
what I wanted to do. I, I would set goals for myself and accomplish those goals and then set new goals for myself. And sometimes I'd set no goals for myself. You know what? I think I'm going to hang around here and, and fix up some guitars that needed need to be worked on or I'm going to get, you know, some uh, things that have been accumulating while I've been on the road done. You know, I've done a lot of that this year. You know, it's been very good. This is the year off. I've really uh, gotten the YouTube channel up and done a lot of performing on that. So I just take things as they come and um, try to develop something that's creative and that's uh, productive and use the time well rather than look back and think, oh, I can't wait till I go on the road again. What's going on? You know, well, you're not going on the road for a while, so do something else, you know. Well, thank you so much, Don McLean, for calling into our show. Well, nice to talk to you. McLean will resume touring in July. That schedule can be found at donmclean.com. And next up on Arts Express. I don't have no privacy, neither do you. The government is watching us, and Walmart's watching too. Your doctor keeps your urine for to clone your DNA. Albums that you bought last night, well, now they know you're gay. Interpol has got a file on you, so does the FBI. McDonald's scans your face, and there's a chip in your French fry. Your scan recorded, sold, and sorted to a database in the sky. So, whatever you do when they're talking to you, God's sakes, lie. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Last week we brought you part one of our interview with journalist Libby Copeland, author of The Lost Family, How DNA Testing Has Upended Who We Are. And we spoke about how the DNA tests offered by companies such as Ancestry and 23andMe can have unintended consequences, both good and bad, when people thought to be close biological relatives turn out to be no such thing. The book follows the mystery of a woman named Alice who discovers that the man she thought was her biological father couldn't possibly be so. And this week, we turn our attention to the larger societal issues, including surveillance and privacy of genetic data. We'll also consider whether the prevalence of such tests tend to privilege more unscientific genetic essentialism. Here's part two where I ask Libby about that. I'm wondering, with all this DNA testing, we get into the area of genetic essentialism. What is genetic essentialism? And do you think these tests encourage the acceptance of such a, an unscientific concept? So genetic essentialism is this belief that there is something immutable and extremely predictive, almost fortune-telling, about our genes, some sort of essence that determines the qualities of who we are. And genetic essentialism is also linked to racial essentialism, mm -hmm. you know, which is this belief that, oh, there's something in your genes that makes you 
white or makes you black and sort of imposes this idea of really fixed differences where, in fact, they, they don't exist on a, on a genetic level. You had a an example in the book, which was kind of shocking to me, where Ancestry had an ad in the, during the 2018 Olympics where they featured an ice skater with 48% Scandinavian background and declared that her heritage accounted for her ice skating precision as if all her skill and hard work were somehow determined by her genes. How is it that Ancestry thought that this would not be objectionable and an unscientific way to frame things? Yeah, it's kind of the worst packaging or marketing of DNA testing to suggest that something in your genetic ancestry gives you remarkable precision or remarkable grace. You know, I recently did write an op-ed for the New York Times about the dangers of racial essentialism in DNA testing. Mm. And I called out that particular ad in the op-ed because I (laughs) think that ad is just so... um, It's terrible. It's boneheaded. Yeah. Yeah. You indicate after 13 or 14 generations, say going back to the Mayflower, there's very little left of the original ancestral DNA sequence left in our genome, which which kind of knocks out theories of royal blood or any kind of genetic supremacy, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm, the important thing to know when you go into genetic testing is that your family tree and your genetic tree are different. And that's because, you know, the way that DNA gets passed down with some of it coming to you and some of it not, and your sibling getting something that maybe you didn't get, means that there you can have, you know, say a fifth cousin that is your true fifth cousin, but you are not genetically related, or at least the companies can't detect overlapping genetic segments between you and that fifth cousin. What that does is it really does kind of throw ice water on our assumptions about, oh, I'm descended from Charlemagne and I, you know, (laughs) I I must carry some bit, some bit of, you know, of that with me. And I think that also does then also throw cold water into genetic essentialism, right? This idea mm-hmm. that we carry some element of greatness from, you know, all those generations back because, you know, you're descended from some, you know, important queen or something like that. I mean, <laughs> just no, that's not how it works. Yeah. And getting your pie chart is not the end of it. It's how people respond to the chart is a whole other issue as well, isn't it? It must have been alarming news for the neo-Nazi who discovered he had Jewish ancestry. So there's actually a really fascinating work being done by sociologists looking at exactly this situation, right? (laughs) What happens when neo-Nazis discover that they are not as quote unquote pure as they assumed? And what they found from studying message boards on one of these um, websites where people who are white supremacists were testing to prove their purity is that they were selective in their interpretation of their results. You know, they would suggest perhaps that it didn't matter, that it was part of a conspiracy. Oh, these companies are run by somebody who's pushing a multicultural agenda, so they're giving you some multicultural (laughs) results. Oh, man. I'm putting those people into a particular category because they're really on the margins and they're they're very disturbing. But, I mean, I do want to make the point that people in general We are all selective about how we see those results. Mm -hmm. And I think, frankly, you know, we are selective sometimes for very good reasons. Just because you are discovering that you are 5% Italian, if your whole and breadth of your experience is something else, does that make you that thing? And I found people often had to answer these questions for themselves, but a lot of it depended on why that information wasn't known to them, right? If you're suddenly Mm. discovering like Alice, you are 50%, something really surprising, (sighs) right? And for Alice, by the way, I should say, none of the expected explanations held true in her case. She was not the product Mm -hmm. of a non-paternity event. She wasn't donor conceived. She wasn't adopted. She wasn't from a community that had hidden its genetic ancestry. That to her was deeply meaningful. We alluded to it earlier, but companies like Ancestry are not just about gathering genetic material. They also scoop up enormous amounts of family data and archival records. Is the DNA data we give to companies used by the companies in ways that we may not know about? So that's a really good question. And and I think it's especially relevant right now because you've seen some recent big money deals happening in the space of uh, the DNA testing industry. 
One is a multi-billion dollar sale of the majority of Ancestry to Blackstone, an equity firm. And the other is a decision by 23andMe to go public um, in a deal valued at $3.5 billion through a merger with a company that um, was established by Richard Branson. There have been privacy concerns. There are these questions about, you know, what is the long-term goal of how this information is going to be used and particularly the asymmetry of it. Yeah. Um, and so there are ethicists and sort of philosophers in this space who sort of say, do we really know what we're giving up, right? And I mean, the other thing I think that is a concern is we sort of don't know where this information goes down the line, right? You may right. have tested with a company and if that company gets purchased by another company with a different privacy policy or different ideas about what they want to do with your information, you may not like that. And then a lot of people do worry about things like breaches. You know, what if this information mm -hmm. gets hacked mm -hmm. somehow and becomes becomes public? I thought it was interesting that the founder of 23andMe, Anne Wojcicki, her former husband is Sergey Brin, Google's co-founder, because it seems like it's like Google. The, the business model is not about selling the kits, but really repackaging and selling the data to third parties. Yeah, the business model is not about selling the kits. The business model is the information that you get from the kits and then the information that you get from additionally querying those customers. So if you have tested at 23andMe and you've consented to have your information used for health-related research, you're probably familiar with the surveys that come. And what they're doing is they're gathering what is called phenotypic data and genotypic mm -hmm. data. Phenotypic data is like the way that, you know, your genes express themselves. So, you know, things like your hair color and, and you know, your maybe potentially your sleep habits. They combine the genotypic and the phenotypic. That's incredibly valuable. And then what they're trying to do is develop, for instance, pharmaceutical drugs. And they may do that in-house or they may do that through like they have a massive partnership with GlaxoSmithKline. And then the idea is that they can kind of turbocharge the process of creating these drugs and then make money through the sale of those products. I want to push further a bit about the consent issue and my belief that that information cannot possibly stay private. We already see law enforcement getting a wedge and getting a foot in the door. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So back in the spring of 2018, a lot of people were familiar with the arrest of the Golden State Killer, who was a man named Joseph James D'Angelo, who was at the time accused, has since been sentenced for his role in at least 13 homicides. And he was also responsible for a number of rapes, probably at least 50. And that was the first time that information gathered for genealogical purposes was accessed and used by law enforcement to arrest someone. And it led to a flood of use of this technique by law enforcement. Um, by one estimate, um, at least 200 cold cases have been you know, solved in this way or have gotten help from genetic genealogy techniques using DNA that was contributed by consumers for the purposes of understanding their genealogical you know, journeys. Let's say my brother is a uh, a rebel, <laughs> and he does something that someone doesn't like, that law enforcement doesn't like. And he's been very careful. He doesn't keep himself in the database, right? But they find some stray DNA, and they trace it as a match, a near match to me. Yeah. I'm in the database. Yeah. And then they can say, oh, well, it must be a sibling of Jack's. So my point here is that when I gave my information. <laughs> I had no idea that I was in some way consenting for my brother to be in that database as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, right? so this is uh, this is such a fraught area. Um, yeah. One thing to know is that it matters where you test. There are relatively more and relatively less protections depending on where you're testing. There are not great guardrails or guidance at this point for how this gets used. So up till now, for the most part, this technique, which is known as investigative genetic genealogy, has been used for the lowest hanging fruit cases. And by lowest hanging fruit, I mean cold cases that haven't been solved any other way, even though they tried, and the most heinous. 
And that's because it's traditionally been fairly expensive. And, you know, law enforcement wants to be on the right side of public opinion. So they're often taking cases that it's very hard for the American public to object to being solved. But there have been some slippery slope cases. And the question is, going forward, what are the guardrails that are in place if Americans decide that they're down with an investigative genetic genealogy? If, you know, there's not a big outcry, which there hasn't been. Yeah. Well, I think they don't understand it. And that's why your book is so great. I mean, I think it brings these issues out. I think, you know, a lot of people don't really know. It's incredibly complicated and it's hard to understand, right? And and you've got to devote a lot of time to know like, the, all the ins and outs, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, so yeah. I think, you know, going forward, is there going to be some sort of guardrails in place for when this is used and when it is not used? Because the beginnings of investigative genetic genealogy have essentially been um, a bit of a wild west. And as time has gotten on, you know, there's more structure in place, but there's still a lot of variability between how different states use it. And there's only sort of official guidance from the federal government, but it's just guidance and it's only for FBI involved mm. investigations. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of open questions about where we're going with this and a lot of, you know, I would say, undefined territory. I think one of the things that really stood out for me in your book was that you said, even if a name is not in a DNA database, very soon, 99% of all Americans will be identifiable by their DNA, whether they consent to it or not. Yeah. And that's because studies have shown that from a third cousin match, people are potentially identifiable because of the combination of the power of DNA, the power of genealogical research, and the power of all the little bits and bites we leave about ourselves on social media. That makes it possible to identify somebody who is not in the database from a third cousin or multiple third cousin matches. I think that's so key for people to understand, because I think until they understand it, they won't understand how important those guardrails you've been talking about are to implement if if it's even possible. Yeah, and so, but something I will say to think about is that there is distinctions between the the different kinds of databases. So if you are spitting into a vial and sending it in, your information is relatively more protected, although there are questions about how law enforcement could come at a company with, say, a warrant or a subpoena for information, right? And whether a judge would grant that and whether the company would concede or fight it. The difference is with third-party sites where information gets uploaded. And, mm -hmm. and in those scenarios, it's much easier for law enforcement to kind of access the system. Typically, they're doing it with company permission, but not always. And sometimes in the past, historically, it's happened without company permission. And sometimes it has happened with the permission of someone at the top of the company in apparent conflict with their own policies and without their consumers knowing. Right. I mean, we've certainly seen mass warrantless surveillance uh, signed off in a pro forma court that, that is meaningless. So I, I guess I'm not optimistic on that point. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of the areas that I watch most carefully. It's, it's an area where civil libertarians have been quite loud, but there's not very yeah. many of them. There's the abstraction of civil liberties weighed against the tangible good of a of a real murder off the streets. And thus far, the civil libertarians have not been winning the argument. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, I think the thing that that struck me over and over talking to people is, you know, that this idea that the past, which we think of as sort of the, the, the doors closed on it, it's really not over. You know, we're going to look back on this period as a kind of a seismic cultural moment, right? The moment when everything changed, <laughs> the the death of family secrets, the moment when we all sort of had to start reckoning with our own histories, but also sometimes with American history and the things that that were done to families that that maybe you know we were, were covered up for generations. Well, it's it's a great book. Thank you so much, Libby. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. I've been talking with Libby Copeland about her new book, The Lost Family: How DNA Is Upending Who You Are, published by Abrams Press. It's a terrific read, and the issues it raises couldn't be more timely. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host. Prairie Miller. You can 
Lie to the man, you can lie right through your tooth. They can take away our privacy, but they can't have the truth. Lie about your favorite drink, your viewing habits, and the color of your sink. Make up a phone number, make up a postal code. If we all lie together, the computer might explode. So come on, everybody. Let's beat those privacy-invading bastards. Let's beat them with disinformation and organized chaos. Let's crash that computer. Let's skew those statistics. Because let's face it, there's only one magical person who knows all our secrets. And if Santa ever does sell his database, we're all screwed. And the music you've been listening to is the privacy song by Three Dead Trolls. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.